It's lovely to see so many faces that uh, I, and I have no doubt that Julie, will recognise uh, as we look down uh, on this crowd this morning. Uh, can I say, of course, a very big thank you to Alison uh, for the warmth of her welcome this morning. It is truly for us an honour to be here today. New Horizon and my own cancer journey are inextricably linked. It was five years ago tomorrow that I had my scan. I was at New Horizon the day before um, and I had my first scan and that uh, proceeded to another scan and it proceeded to being called to see the oncologist by the end of New Horizon week five years ago. Um, Some will remember Malcolm Duncan spoke on Thursday evening five years ago and on that occasion he shared he had uh, broken into his normal uh, planned schedule of, of addresses for, for New Horizon to speak about suffering of Mary, Martha and Lazarus. And uh, I remember when going afterwards to speak to him uh, and commenting that that was meant for me if it wasn't for everyone else. Julie and I are, are delighted to be here today and to share in this of what the Lord has taught us in some small way on our own journey. And I... Uh, through trying to help families going through uh, issues with cancer. The title we've taken for today is from, uh, based on Rachel Bland's Five Life podcast that some of you will know. It's called You, Me and the Big C. And so we've taken the big C, but we've changed its meaning entirely and made it an even bigger C. He is, we believe, the only source of our hope and through faith in him, we have a living hope. We want today to deal very sensitively with this because cancer is not easy and I'm not pretending that that I find it easy uh, and we want to be deeply honest and deeply open uh, about our own experiences. Cancer is understandably a very negative word. Past generations didn't talk about it or try to hide away from it. Thankfully now we are much more open about cancer than we used to be. But that still doesn't mean it's easy to talk about. I guess there isn't one of us here today that doesn't have a family member or a member of our church family who has been or is going through a cancer journey. And how big is that big C? These figures are probably pretty staggering for all of us. Approximately 3 million people in the United Kingdom are living with cancer. 220,000 live with cancer in the island of Ireland and 70,000 of us are here in Northern Ireland. 360,000 people are diagnosed every year with cancer in the UK and as Alison rightly reminded us, 25 people on average are diagnosed with cancer in Northern Ireland every day. Figures from Action Cancer, and I'm delighted to see uh, a representative from Action Cancer here today, tell us that one in three women and one in two men will have cancer at some time in their lives. Uh, Present statistics and going forward. Cancer can be shrouded in a lot of negativity. Terms give that away. Cancer victim. Fighting cancer. Losing the battle to cancer, having a cancer scare, and the list goes on. My own experience of pancreatic cancer in the last few years as a voluntary counsellor, seeing those going through cancer, I naturally hear a lot of doom, gloom, and despair. But as a Christian, and as a Christian with cancer, I want to stand here and unapologetically say this morning, loud and clear, that cancer is a big C all right, but it's not my biggest C. My big C is Christ, full stop. And if he's my big C, then cancer has to have a small C. Now that's not to be blasé or to belittle the awfulness that cancer is. But seen through Christian eyes, cancer must look very different to the often very negative way in which it's seen in the secular world. We have real hope, a living hope in Christ. He is our big C. And I encourage us all here today to make that definition change, here and now. 
The big C is not cancer. The big C is Christ. And when God came into my life very powerfully as a boy of 14 and changed me by his grace and has been with me ever since, then I have known that no matter what change comes into my life, it is always going to come through his love and grace first. Paul writes in Romans 8 verse 35, Who or what shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Who will separate us from the love of God, asks Paul. He suggests tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. I think I have Paul's permission to add one other word. I think Paul could add in cancer there quite happily. I know that healing is a big issue in the whole subject of cancer, and I'm going to leave that to Julie to deal with. I can only say in my own experience that sometimes healing isn't what we think it is. Sometimes the healing that we receive from the Lord is not physical, but it is emotional, and sometimes it is spiritual. And there have been times that I am thankful to God that his healing came in the sense of knowing a renewed sense of his peace and his presence with me, and at other times just simply knowing that his hand was in my hand and a a renewing of joy in, in knowing Christ. However, I want to say this, that healing is always going to be temporary in this life. All who were healed by Jesus ultimately have gone home to be with him. Our real hope is in heaven in a glorious new body with Jesus forever. My dear friend, the late Douglas Mark, who spoke here at New Horizon many times, And he and I got the privilege of meeting together almost once a week um, for the final year of his earthly pilgrimage. And what he used to say to me often, and Alison will bear me out on this, he said he was easing gently towards heaven. And I just find that amazing and so encouraging. We have a living hope, a glorious and blessed hope. And today we celebrate that. But I want to say finally that we want to be real this morning. And this wonderful scripture taken from um, the letter, uh, from the words of Peter, where he speaks of being born again to a living hope. You'll find that loud and clear. We're commanded to rejoice. But will you notice also, I've underlined in the same verse, suffer grief. Our Christian faith is not burying our head in the sand. It is not pretending that nothing is happening in our lives or that we don't find this difficult. And Peter puts three words here all together in a few verses. Living hope, rejoice, and suffering grief. Yes, we are in a fallen world, but we are in a world where we are looking forward to that glorious day when Jesus returns or calls us home to be with him forever. I'm delighted this morning to have Julie uh, sharing. We've divided this really into two parts, and Julie's going to share her perspective of of being a hope-filled follower of Jesus going through cancer. I'm delighted to welcome Julie to share today. Thanks, Julie. Thank you, Ian. Well, what I want to do as I share some of my story is to give you a little insight into what went on in my mind and my soul as I faced cancer and also what God has taught me through it. So I'm not going to give you a blow-by-blow account of the hospital appointments and the physical impact that cancer has had on me or we'd be here all day. Please understand that I'm not trying to minimise the physical devastation cancer and its treatment can bring. Cancer has hugely impacted my body. Uh, And I'm still living with the side effects, even after treatment has finished and they think the cancer has gone. Cancer is a disease that I feared. I think most of us do, if we're honest. 
And it can be a terrifying and overwhelming experience. The thing that I feared most came to my door nearly two years ago in October 2017. I was 38 years old at the time. It came as a bolt out of the blue. I was a stay-at-home mum of a five, three and one-year-old. Life was busy and I was feeling fine. I was diagnosed within two weeks of finding the lump. Something that I'm extremely thankful for now, but at the time it was a lot to process. We hadn't told our families that we were going that I was going for the tests in the breast clinic in Antrim. And to be honest, uh, we weren't expecting to get a diagnosis there and then, but we did. Obviously, I was hoping that it was just a cyst and there was nothing to concern our family with. But deep down, I knew that I was heading into a season of illness because I believe that God forewarned me on the night that I found the lump. But I'll come back to that. First, I need to give you some of my backstory. I had spent years as a deaconess ministering to people who were in times of trials of one kind or another. But the ones that caused me most heartache were the ones where cancer was involved. I was especially challenged as I walked with a good friend of mine on her cancer journey. The Lord took her home just six months before my own diagnosis. As I watched her and her family suffer, I was heartbroken and struggled with so many questions. I didn't realise it at the time, but her walk, God used her walk to help me develop a theology of sickness and suffering and helped me face my own cancer. I have to confess that I raged at God for allowing cancer into my friend's life. What was he doing? She was a young woman trusting him and seeking to honour him in her daily life. She had a husband and young children to care for. It seemed so senseless. Wouldn't restoring her health be a better, the best way to display his love and power? As I fired my questions at him and cried to him in lament, God started to ask me some questions of his own. This is what I believe he said. In the face of cancer, am I still who I say I am? And of course the answer is yes. God never changes. The Bible testifies to this in Psalm 102, verse 25 to 28. Malachi 3, verse 6. Hebrews 13, verse 8. James 1, verse 17. He also said, Go to my word and examine what I say about the cause of suffering and sickness. Remind yourself of what I have done about it. Remember all that I have won for my people at the cross. Remember that I have defeated death and promised to one day wipe away all tears. Hold on to the fact that I am sovereign. Do I ever say that my children should not suffer? My word tells you the exact opposite. My children will suffer trials of various kinds. Don't be surprised by them. See what that suffering has a purpose, and I promise I will bring good out of it. That good may not be what you expect or long for. It may not seem right to you, but will you trust me? I know what I'm doing. Have you ever found yourself brokenhearted and asking God similar questions? Then go to his word and find out what he says about trials. Even go before you face those questions. For there is no weapon like the word of God for warding off threats to faith, as John Piper says. Do as the psalmist does, run to God, not away from him when you're perplexed and confused. Hope is to be found in turning to God and in wrestling with reality rather than in trying to ignore it. We can so easily go into denial and seek self, uh, seek distraction and escapism. But going into and staying in these places can often deny the purposes of God in the midst of our suffering. 
Knowing that there is purpose in the pain gives, can give us hope and helps us to triumph over fear in the midst of it. Do you live in the fear of what if? Then hear what Vanitha Randall Reisner says. Many of us live in fear, wondering whether the worst might happen to us and our loved ones. But replacing what if with even if is one of the most liberating exchanges we can make. I think she's echoing the prayer that can be found in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17 to 19. Nancy DeMoss Wolgamuth, speaking of God's goodness, says, God is good whether or not our choices, his choices seem right to us, whether or not we feel it, whether or not it seems true, whether or not he gives us everything we want. And Alan Redpath, speaking of God's purposes, says, There is nothing, no circumstance, no trouble, no testing that can ever touch me until first of all it has gone past God and past Christ right through to me. If it has come that far, it has come with a great purpose, which I may not understand at the moment. So back to the night that I found the lump. As you can imagine, I'm sure some of you have been there. That night I was flooded with all sorts of questions and thoughts. Your mind goes into overdrive and fear starts to take hold. I knew that if I didn't redirect my mind and focus on God's truth, that I would spiral into panic and anxiety. As I opened my Bible and devotional materials, God halted all those assailing thoughts and met with me. Psalm 107 was part of my reading that night. It says, it starts, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. This psalm has been a feature of my cancer journey. One that the Lord has used time and again to steady me up when anxiety and fear threaten to overwhelm me. I find that the presence of fear does not mean you have no faith. Fear visits everyone, but make your fear a visitor and not a resident, as Max Licato says. And to make my fear a visitor and not a resident, I need to focus on God, for he will bring me to the harbour for which I am bound in the midst of the storm. That harbour is ultimately heaven itself. A cancer diagnosis brings you face to face with death. I have needed to constantly remind myself that I will not die even a second before my time, which God has determined before I was even born, Psalm 139 verse 16 tells me. And based on Philippians 1, verses 6, 24 and 25, I can be sure that God will have accomplished all that he wants to do in me and through me before he takes me to heaven, whether that be sooner or later than my three score years and ten. The truth is, as John Piper puts it, cancer does not win if you die. It wins if you fail to treasure Christ. Another part of my reading that night was a quote from Spurgeon, and it'll be up on the screen. There is no greater mercy that I know of on earth than good health, except be it sickness. And that has often been a greater mercy to me than health. It is a good thing to be without a trouble, but it is a better thing to have a trouble and know how to get grace enough to bear it. As I read these things, I knew the Lord was asking me to trust him, to remember that he is good and does good, to cry out to him in my trouble and know that if this was sickness, then he would give me the grace to accept that he'd allowed it into my life. It could even be a great mercy to me. I knew it was to keep giving thanks for his steadfast love. That night, after talking to the Lord about these things, I had an overwhelming sense of peace in my soul, even though I suspected all was not okay within my body. 
This peace that passes all understanding has remained when I, when I have cried out to the Lord, remembered that he is near and chosen to be thankful, as Philippians 4 verses 4 to 7 exhorts me to do. That Spurgeon quote is countercultural, not only in the world, but also in the Western church. How many Christians have you heard saying that sickness has been a great mercy to them? In this world, we are told, your health is your wealth. And we live with the assumption that we have a right to good health and a long, comfortable life. Even as Christians, we, our human nature still struggles to be in control. We want things our way, life to work out in our plans. And often we think we know better than God. And when trials and difficulties come, our only response is, God, get me out of this. So we send out the SOS for physical healing, and that is what the church prays for. Cancer sufferers have, are often told to have enough faith and God will heal you. Keep positive and you'll be all right. What then if he chooses not to physically heal us? Does that mean that we didn't have enough faith or that there weren't enough people praying for us? This faulty thinking can cause a cancer sufferer even more pain. I would really recommend that you read Vanitha Rendell Reisner's article called Just Have More Faith, How Bad Theology Hurts the Suffering. This article helped me get my head around why God chooses to miraculously heal some people and not others. I can be found on the Desiring God website, and while you're there, it's full of good articles that would be my must-reads. They're not long, but boy are they helpful. They have been to me. They are 10 Ways Not to Waste Your Cancer by John Piper and David Paulson. Christ and Cancer by John Piper and God is Bigger Than My Cancer, Learning Joy in the Darkness and that's by J. Todd Billings. The Lord has used these writers, all cancer sufferers themselves, to point me to the gospel truths and help me think differently about cancer. I believe this sickness has been a great mercy to me. I have experienced the good that God works in all things, Romans 8 to 28, even in affliction. I can say with the psalmist in 119 verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. I'm not saying that I think cancer is good or sickness, but that God, if he allows it in a Christian's life, will have good purposes for it. So what is the good that has come from my affliction? Here are the top five things I think I've learned. Firstly, God is an ever-present help in trouble. Cancer cannot separate me from his love, and cancer is not a punishment for my sin. I have come to know my Saviour in a deeper way and heard his voice as I've never heard it before. It has been a tough road, but I wouldn't change it. I feel like I've been gathering nuggets of gold from God's storehouse, and he has been bringing about growth in my life that may not have happened any other way. I love what Christine Kane says. Sometimes when you're in a dark place, you think you've been buried, but you've actually been planted. Although in the early days I couldn't concentrate for long to read scripture, the Lord seemed to be speaking in stereo. I often found myself laughing at how God used the most unlikely of sources, including a photo of the East Strand and Port Rush and a song by the grime rapper Stormzy. Not my usual taste in music, I have to say, but these reaffirmed what he had already revealed to me through his word. The Psalms have become so precious to me. I have found this desolate valley to be a place of springs. So much so that I felt some trepidation as I came to the end of chemo because I didn't want my mountaintop experience with God to end. Spiritually, I've had harder days after treatment finished. 
But when I'm struggling to see God's hands, hand, I can still trust his heart. Secondly, I've learned that my life is not all about me. Francis Chan says the point of your life is to point to him. Whatever you're doing, God wants to be glorified because this whole thing is his. I was made by him and for him, according to Colossians 1.16. But when you become ill, there is a temptation to be self-centred and self-indulgent. People have told me to look after myself, do whatever I can, I want to treat myself as if I'm number one. Now, I know what they mean. On one level, it is right to rest and do all that you can to help your body fight disease. And believe me, I have rested. Stuart will tell you that. And I've been amazed at how God has provided for the basic daily needs of my family. But that advice can also present a temptation to live with an attitude of gratitude, demand, placing demands on others to serve me. That entitlement attitude can lead to self-pity, anger and bitterness when our demands are not met. I think that goes against what the Bible teaches about loving and serving God and others. Does illness and suffering negate that command? I don't see it anywhere in scripture. In fact, the clear example from Jesus on the cross is that he looks outside of himself and his own distress and he cares for those around him. So even on our worst of days, Christ can enable us to have an attitude of gratitude rather than entitlement. Now the other extreme, on the other extreme, there is a temptation to proudly battle on relying on ourselves and refusing the help of others. After my surgery and while receiving chemo and Herceptin therapy, I struggled big time with my inability to do certain things. It really upset me that my body couldn't cope with what I expected it to do. I had to learn to be vulnerable, to be patient, to admit my weaknesses and accept even sometimes ask for help. In this, the Lord was chipping away at my pride. I've learned that there is great blessing to all involved if you allow others to serve the Lord by serving you. David Paulison says, One anothering is a two-way street of generous giving and grateful receiving. Your need gives others an opportunity to love. So don't become stoic. Thirdly, it is possible to praise God and be thankful in the midst of suffering. K. Arthur helpfully puts it this way. God is in control and therefore in everything I can give thanks. Not because of the situation, but because of the one who directs and rules over it. And I found John Bloom's uh, book, Don't Follow Your Heart, helpful. It helped me to realise that my emotions are only meant to be a gauge and not a guide. I don't have to be ruled by my emotions. I can choose to fix my mind and my eyes on Christ and his promises. And then I find that I have reason to praise him no matter what my circumstances. God is glorious even when our circumstances are not. Fourthly, I've learnt to pray for other things as well as a miracle when someone is ill. It is the power of God that brings healing, whether that's by miracle or by the NHS. It's right to pray for both. But healing is not God's plan for everyone. John Piper in his article Christ and Cancer says, we should pray for God's help both to heal and to strengthen faith when we are unhealed. It is fitting that a child asks his father for relief in trouble, and it is fitting that a loving father gives his child only what is best, and that he always does, sometimes now, sometimes not, but always, always what is best for us. The glory of God is manifested when he heals 
And when he gives a sweet spirit of hope and peace to the person that he does not heal. For that too is a miracle of grace. Healing is a miracle of grace. And that's why I struggle with the language that is sometimes used around cancer. I don't feel that I have battled it or beaten it or even that I'm a survivor. Because cancer is something that ultimately I can't control and is in God's hands. I don't know if it will return one day in the future. Only he does. The battle I've been engaged in is the battle of my mind to take every thought captive and not be ruled by my feelings and emotions. And finally, and fifthly, cancer is not my biggest problem. The world might see cancer as my greatest enemy and biggest problem, but according to the Bible, it's not. That would be Satan and my sin. And if God has dealt with my greatest enemy and my biggest problem through Christ, which he has, then I can trust him with my life and that of my family. Josh McDowell says, no matter how devastating our struggles, disappointments and troubles are, they are only temporary. No matter what happens to you, no matter the depth of tragedy or pain you face, no matter how death stalks you and your loved ones, the resurrection promises you a future of immeasurable good. Surely as a Christian, the biggest sea in my life should be Christ and not cancer. I must battle to keep this perspective, for only there is where I find my hope. Thank you for listening. And now I'll hand back over to Ian, who will deal with the hope-filled family and fellowship. Thanks, Julie. I've been in ministry now for more than 20 years, and after becoming unwell and finally being diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, through surgery, through treatment, having lost most of my pancreas, spleen, and part of my stomach and bowel, I said, Lord, what are you going to do with me now? Is there anything I can do anymore? And I know that that's a common reality for many of us who have been through cancer. Lord, have you finished with me? God's answer came to me through someone who wasn't even a believer. She said, Ian, have you ever thought of using your time and skills to help people going through cancer? And my initial reaction was, Lord, I would rather do anything else. And I mean that. I felt so very ill-equipped and so I set myself to a course in, in counselling so that I could help people in a, some meaningful way. And the, the vision I want to, to leave here uh, as, as we conclude this morning is how can we create an environment of hope in our families and in our fellowships? Any of you here Gardeners? Yeah, good, good. Glad to see that. I'm an amateur, but I love planting things and seeing them grow. And what I've learned very clearly, very, very clearly indeed, is that you've got to plant the thing in the right place at the right time. And you've got to give it the right environment or it won't grow at all. And in the face of cancer, my vision is to see families and church fellowships creating environments of hope where those dealing with cancer can still grow and still flourish. When someone has cancer, the whole family, the whole family or everyone who loves them does too. I direct you to the slide. Cancer rarely comes to an individual. It usually comes and affects everyone in a family or in a fellowship. Routines go out the window. Appointments, hospital stays, being off work, these become the new normal. Housework and cleaning pile up. Relationship issues come to the fore. Financial pressures raise their ugly heads. And, you know, even after someone comes home from hospital and we think that, well, this is a wonderful new chapter, 
That can be a really difficult time too because little things can cause annoyance and stress and together family things can't happen and children can feel very much left out. And how can we create environments of hope in our families and in our fellowships? Well, I just want to uh, this morning move very quickly uh, through a little acrostic that I've presented. I don't know about you, but I sometimes find if I hear a long uh, piece of information, I go away and I remember one part of it and the other part of it I completely forget. So part of my, what helps me in my old age and with my small brain is that if I find something I can hang things on, then I can take it away and I can at least remember what was O for and think about it for a while and then I'll remember. So what I'm going to do uh, is use this little acrostic this morning. I love modern praise, but I also love the old hymns. And one hymn I love is Tell Me the Old, Old Story. There's one line particularly. It's this, tell me the old, old story often, for I forget so soon. Tell me the story often. And so my little acrostic, I'm going to hang to the few last things I want to say this morning on those five letters. And beginning then with the letter O. I want to suggest that, oh, if we're going to build families of positivity and hope in the face of cancer, it's got to begin with openness. O means openness, creating a culture of openness. If a family has a culture of secrets and dismissal at the best of times, it is unhealthy. But in a home where cancer is, it is toxic. To be open about the facts that are going on, Now, age appropriateness is very important, I know, but there is never an excuse for saying nothing or giving false information. My experience is on balance that in the absence of facts, little minds make things up and big people make things up too. It may be a very simple explanation. You maybe say, well, how can I tell my four-year-old that I've got cancer? Now, I know that's not easy. But in the simplest of terms, please try and explain it or find a a friend or a pastor or or someone from uh, some of the the cancer care charities who have people who are well equipped to do this. Be open, be clear, be straightforward, ask for help if you need it, but create openness. Light is always better than shadows and darkness, always. And then what about our feelings? Facts, what about our feelings? We Northern Ireland folk have a very funny relationship with feelings, particularly men folks. Stiff upper lip. Pull yourself together. Put on a brave face. But who made us emotional beings? Bottling up motion, emotions is like welding the steam valve on a pressure cooker. Of course, we need to be balanced. But that's a far cry from being phony around our feelings. Dr. Emily Givler, a Christian, a doctor and cancer sufferer, and all in that order, spills out the very raw emotions she felt when she was diagnosed with cancer and she confesses to hipping the ground very hard because she tried to hide her emotions. She calls opening up to her emotions being the hardest job of work that she ever had to do always wanting to be in control. And she counsels, tears are okay. I'm afraid is okay. I'm down today is okay. But openness becomes the good soil in which hope grows. You see, plants I find always grow out of brown dirt. Never seen one grow in midair. They tend to grow out of brown dirt in the soil. And very often, even in cancer, Hope begins in the brown dirt of reality, an environment of openness and honesty where we're real about what is going on. That's in the family. And then very quickly, what about our fellowships? Well, again, I want to say this morning or this afternoon as it is now that openness is vital. It's absolutely vital. Cancer affects all of our fellowships. Few haven't had someone or presently have someone on that journey. And how are we to deal with this? Ignore it. Sadly, it happens. I don't know what to say to Mrs. Jones, so I pretend I didn't see her going out of church this morning. 
Yes, it's hard to know what to say. And that's where our theology matters. We're not just a group of people who have a common interest on a Sunday for an hour or two. We do not attend a church. We attend football matches, but we don't attend church. We belong to the church. And Paul is so clear about that in 1 Corinthians 12 and again in Ephesians chapter 4 where the body is one and has many members. And the church being a body organically, we are a body. We are united. We are linked to one another. And as Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 26, when a body has one part that hurts, all parts hurt with it. In fact, the hurting part usually gets the most attention. So in the church, there is no place for standing back, no place for leaving the care of a cancer sufferer to the ministry team. But you know, the flip side of openness is confidentiality. If I will open my heart to you and tell you what's going on in there and what's really happening, I don't want to know about that on the street tomorrow. And if we're going to create an, an environment of openness in our church fellowships, then we have got to commit ourselves honestly before God to confidentiality about that. To know that there is a difference between public and personal information. And make sure that if someone tells you something that's going on in their heart and in their lives or in their physical body and their, their whole condition, that you are careful with that information. Sometimes it's just to bring that to God and to leave it there. It's easy to confuse care with curiosity. I don't need to know everything to care for you, but I will still be there for you. You can trust me any time, any place, anything. And that's how the body of Christ is meant to work. Can I say be very careful about prayer requests because it can be a wonderful way of looking for news and it's a rife problem in every fellowship that I've been dealing with. It's only for prayer, of course, but really what we want to do is get the latest information. Let's be careful about that. If we're going to talk to God in prayer about it, well, then that's fine, but let it stop there. People struggle needlessly sometimes because of the carelessness of how we deal around this whole area of openness. Sometimes they can't open, and sometimes our fellowships are not places of openness when they ought to be. Let's pray that God will give us a vision and a wisdom to make sure that our fellowships are places where people can be open and where we can all be open. Let's move very quickly to F, to focus. I don't know about you, but when I get up in the morning, it normally takes me three or four minutes before I can really see anything until I I get my eyes focused. Maybe it's a growing old thing. But when cancer strikes, routine disintegrates and we need to focus. And I advise people, make sure you get back to your routine and the family as quickly as possible after the high drama of diagnosis or surgery or treatment. Families need together to know that life restores to normality as soon as possible. And can I encourage togetherness and the children should be taken to visit their loved one in hospital no matter how young they are. But, you know, we need not only to focus on things, we need to focus on someone. And the Christian family needs to know that God has not exited the scene, and he never will. Take time as a Christian family still to read the Bible together. It's more important now. Yes, there are many, many things to do, but find time to read God's word together and pray and encourage children to tell God about their experience and their feelings too. Don't leave the little ones out. Encourage them. Name concerns together. Make sure um, that you you, you find help in, in that if it's difficult to establish, but do it. I wish I could find a good devotional resource for children and for young families going through a cancer experience. And if you have found one, will you please tell me afterwards? Because I'd be delighted to find one. In the struggle that I've had to find any resources that I can recommend to people, I've set myself presently to writing such a resource so please watch this space keeping our eyes on jesus is not a nice suggestion it is a command a command that is needed more at the time of a cancer crisis and then what about focus in our fellowship church we need to regain our perspective of heaven it bothers me more than a little that we can be too earthbound sometimes 
Now, I understand the reason maybe that we've become so this life conscious. There was a saying that used to be uh, commonly said that someone is too heavenly minded to be of any earthly use. And maybe there was something in that. But there's a danger, a danger, very much a danger that we lose sight of the glorious hope to which we are called. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. He also said, seek first my kingdom. He said, lay up treasure in heaven. He said, and Paul said, I desire to be with Christ, which is far better. And even the psalmist said, whom have I in heaven but you? We preach about navigating life, but how much do we preach about heaven? And I speak as a minister this morning. Maybe we're confessional Christians, but practicing Sadducees. Do we really live in the light of the glorious hope of heaven? And then the choice of our songs and worship services and the language of our prayers and even in our preaching, how much of our focus is there on heaven? I did some services last summer. I I love to to take on some pulpit supplies when health allows me, usually during the summer months. And I took my little, well, one sermon. I have to apologize if you were here and and heard uh, one of them. But I took my one little sermon round and it was on heaven. And I just preached on heaven and I picked hymns around heaven. And my children's talk was about heaven. And it was heaven from beginning to end. I don't know whether the people find it heaven from beginning to end or not. But that's neither here nor there. But, you know, what encouraged me was a number of people came up to me and they said, look, I've never heard a sermon on heaven before. And I was amazed at how much the Bible has to say about heaven. For those whose flight may leave for their sooner than others. Make sure that we emphasize heaven. I say that carefully and I want you to think about what I've said. For those whose flight for there may leave sooner than for others. Make sure that in our services and in our ministry that we focus on heaven. Time, T, O-F-T. Time, it's the most precious commodity in all the world. If you just wonder wonder about that, just ask someone who has one day to live. A cancer diagnosis can scupper the whole idea that time is something we have control over. I've got to say in my own experience when the surgeon first pulled up the screen and my wife and I sat in his study and he pulled the thing round and allowed us to see what he could see on the screen and point out where my tumour was and what was involved and all that. It almost felt as if someone on the stopwatch had pressed the button. And I remember walking out onto the street afterwards and feeling to the traffic that was zooming up and down and everybody getting on with their lives. Will you please stop? do you know what has happened in my life? And of course, no one else knew or probably didn't really care. But that's life, isn't it? But the time button gets stopped. That has made me think a lot. All I have is now. This now moment, the pinpoint and the infinite string that is eternity. My conscious experience is now, this moment. As my now moments move along the long line of eternity, one time my next now moment will be to see Jesus' face. Can I encourage you to think of life like that? Not to focus unnecessarily on tomorrow, but on the now moment and to acknowledge that as my now moment moves along that long uh, line that is God's eternal purpose. One day my now moment will be to see his face. Make the most of each now moment in the family. Make memories. Stop and glorify God and the beauty of a sunset and his creation. There's a little quote I've come across. Don't count your days. Make each day count. That's a quote that I value now. And then what about time in our fellowships? It's true, isn't it, that we show what we value by what we invest in. Time isn't an investment. Are we using a precious and limited resource? Every church family has a set of priorities. Is our priority to minister to those who are coming to the end of life's journey? Is it the work just of the pastor or the care team? Or is it all our task? 
Is it an added burden, something that has to be done, or is it an immense privilege? Very briefly, I'm old enough to be of that generation where a guy might ask a girl if he could walk her home. Now, that's long before any of you millennials who are here this morning, long before the days of internet dating or the idea of of contacting someone by mobile phone. And for you young people here this morning, it was being Mr. Chivalrous par excellence and getting that poor damsel in distress to her father's home safely. Mind you, there were few times it was considered a great burden. Can I walk you home? Can I ask it in our fellowships? For those who are in the very hard last stretch of their life on this earth, could we give our time, not begrudgingly, to share with somebody with a limited time prognosis in the sense of walking them home to the Father's house? I'm trying to do that for a number of people myself at the moment. Taking time to spend an afternoon together regularly, to read a book together, to pray, to sing, to get their life story, to make a memory box for children or siblings, to be still, no rush, and maybe even to be there to lead them right to the very door of the Father's house. I can't think of a greater privilege. Can I walk you home? Can we take that as part of what we want to do in our fellowships? Can I walk you home? E, and we need to move very quickly. Encourage. Cancer can be a real emotional hoover, sucking up every shred of self-worth or independence. Many live with cancer and have been there. We can encourage by our words, but words must be chosen well. Apples of gold and pictures of silver, as how the writer of the Proverbs puts it. But encouragement is vital. To tell a young wife robbed of her femininity by the ravages of a double mastectomy, you are still the bride I delight in and the one whose love still ravishes me still needs to be said. Or the child to tell his dad that he's the best dad in all the world even if he can't get out of bed. A young mum I ministered to told me how much it meant to hear her children say that she was the best cook in all the world after she got out of bed to make mince and tatties. We encourage by our words, we encourage by being there. A physical presence is a massive encouragement and a time of illness. Just be there. And in our fellowships. Marissa Henley is a writer I go to often. In her book, Loving Your Friend Through Cancer, she says often that in our fellowship, we want to fellowships, we want to fix problems rather than mend persons. When we set about fixing problems, we make it about us, our perspective, our solutions, not the person's real needs, and mostly we get it wrong. Be careful to rush in with platitudes. Somebody, after... I'd had my surgery, very kindly came to visit me in hospital and was very determined to make sure that I understood Romans 8 verse 28. Now, I think that's a wonderful verse and I passionately believe it, but I didn't appreciate it being force-fed to me when I was in awful pain after my surgery. What works? Let's be like Barnabas. His name that we regularly refer to is Barnabas, but his real name is is actually Simon, and it means a son of encouragement, and he walked alongside people that needed him. Paul, John Mark, walk alongside people who, who are suffering, not ahead of them to tell them what to do, not behind them to find fault and criticize, but right beside them like Barnabas, to see the world through their eyes, to feel their pain, and to point them always to the Lord. My elder from church has done that for me. Often a short phone call, and then he prays with me over the phone. It helps me invaluably. And can I recommend it to you very, very highly.
The last slide and the last point is needs. All of us are bottomless pits of needs. <coughs> Cancer brings a raft of new needs. Family must be sensitive to those needs. And in the family, please, can I urge today, because it may not often be said in environments other than this, be practical as family members. The laundry basket is not self-emptying. The fridge is not, is not self-replenishing. The meals on the table just don't land there. And about physical things, be sensitive to others' pain or the distress of having to run to the bathroom every five minutes. Yes, it may be very annoying for everyone else, but it's more annoying for the person going through the experience. Or struggling to accept that they've lost their hair, or look unwell, or are tired to the bone, and I see some people nodding and understanding. And in the marital situation, cancer can rob all intimacy due to hospital stays or physical pain. But that person still needs to know they are loved. It is a God-made need. Don't neglect it. Be sensitive to emotional needs. And what does a fellowship need to know and do? To ask sensitively, how are you today? Not just how are you, but how are you today? That brings it up fresh. How are you today? Any appointments coming up? And ask how the last appointment was. What can I pray for you this incoming week? And if you run out of ideas, just say I'm still praying for you. And of course, really do it. Get meals into that home, cut the grass, drive patients to appointments. A man I came to know well in the cancer ward, he lived far from Belfast. And for the treatment he had to have prior to his surgery, a Christian neighbor drove him 70 miles once a week to have his treatment. That Christian man never made a great attempt to preach or pressure. The gentleman that I was dealing with was not a believer. But that ill man in hospital was wide open to talk about the gospel because the real work was done and the practical work that happened earlier. I was just reaping another person's sowing, and that person came to faith. Maybe think of setting up a cancer buddy team in your fellowship, or a regular support group, and Julie and I have been involved in one of those in, in this area. Or in your church, where people have experience of cancer, allow them to support others and take the pressure off the pastoral team. But obviously spiritual needs are the highest priority. And make sure that we keep those uh, that uh, as our priority. Can I say as I close today, Christians can sometimes say things when they are sick, maybe full of medication that seem out of character. And the temptation is to challenge or reprove them or even question the profession of their faith. John Piper in his book Future Grace is very helpful. He says this, these things, these out-of-character rantings or times when people with cancer may say things that are out of, out of context, he calls them words for the wind. Job chapter 6, verse 26. Words to be ignored. Words to be forgotten. Please note this. We will spare a lot of pain if we do. Many biblical saints said things that we raise our eyebrows at. At times of crisis like Elijah or people like Jonah. The church needs to be missional about cancer. Cancer is everywhere. Beyond our church doors, many live and die with cancer who never know the hope of Christ or the gospel. I've learned more and more lately that life comes to us in seasons. And a cancer diagnosis is often a season in many lives for receptivity to the gospel. Let's be missional in our communities. Go after the churchless family in your neighborhood where cancer has come. No one can accuse you of wanting anything in return. It could be a land bridge into that person coming to Christ and maybe even their whole family. I want to close with this and I'm conscious the time is gone. There's a little verse. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Do you know what that picture's about as I close? It's a picture of a Roman army having captured a city. 
And when the battle is over, the Roman soldier, uh, the, the Roman emperor and his soldiers return back to Rome. And there's this grand procession into the city uh, with the enemies. Uh, the normal picture was you had the emperor, then you had the soldiers, then you had the enemies. And then you had the priests at the back with their censers of incense making this wonderful smell of victory. Do you know that on those parades, very often the soldiers that were coming in in that procession were having to be carried. Some of them war beaten. Some of them scarred beyond recognition. But they were carried in the procession into the city. And that's what Paul is saying. On this great procession that Christ is leading us on, thank God it includes people like us. Those of us who have been war wounded by cancer, but we're on a glorious procession that will lead us into the city that is heaven. May God help us all to be those who are often there for our families and often there for our fellowships. Please let's honor these two wonderful people. I feel we've been on holy ground.